0: going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to skip down just a little bit, uh, and we're going to start again in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 33. So we're going to be in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 33, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. And now we get into uh, the exposition part of the sermon as Jesus explains uh, the law. So hear the word of the Lord for you, His church, this morning. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard it said, Shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. So I pray by it this morning that you would challenge us that you would change us, that you would shape us and transform us. Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to learn obedience. Not simply by being taught to us, but by watching your life, watching your ministry, trying to imitate it for ourselves. Lord, be with us. Open our hearts to receive your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in college, uh, I got hired on part-time uh, as a, tournament, a golf tournament rules official. My dad had a junior tour in Orlando, and see, he brought his son on as the uh, part-time rules official, and so my job was essentially, as these kids were playing uh, in this tournament over the course of two days or so, uh, I would ride around in my golf cart with my uh, coolers of water on the back that kids could come get water out of the cooler, and I would also help with some uh, rules officiating, which means if kids had questions about the rules, I would come help answer their questions. And uh, maybe more than anything else, uh, in all of golf that I got to rules officiate, the one thing that I called on most that I had to talk to kids about were things called pace of play issues. And you don't have to be a golfer to necessarily know what pace of play issues means. And in golf, just to humor me for a second, the rules of golf say you have about 45 seconds when you stand over the ball to hit your shot. It's not a official 45 seconds you're supposed to keep it in your head, but give or take, you're supposed to keep it around 45 seconds on an average. Uh, but as I was driving around in these carts and I was watching these kids play, no joke, I'm not exaggerating. These kids would take about five minutes to hit their shot. They would get over the shot, they'd waggle a little bit, look at the hole. Then they get back off, look at it again, feel the wind. they get back over it again, waggle a little bit. Then they back off, and then the real killer, they would talk to their dad. Talk to their dad for a good two minutes. The dad couldn't make up his mind, and the kid would get back over the ball. And then eventually, after five minutes, they would hit their shot. I guarantee you that any sort of patience that I have in pastoral ministry was learned on the 13th green of Hawks Landing Golf Club when I watched kids hit their chip shot over the green, into the water, drop a ball, and go through the same process again and again and again. But where do kids learn to go slow in golf? Nobody likes it. All your coaches will tell you, hey, you need to get up, and you just need to hit your shot. Don't think about it, right? You're not taught to be slow. So where do kids learn how to be really slow when they play golf? Well, they learned it by watching TV. They learned it by watching the pros play golf, because the pros do all of these routines and rituals, and they take forever to hit. And kids watch this on TV, and they're like, you know what? It would be really cool if I imitate that, if I do the same things that the pros do. Hence, at a junior golf tournament, they take five minutes to hit their golf shot. Right? They watch and they imitate, and that is how they learned. And I bring that up this morning because I think that that's actually a common way that we learn things in our lives, isn't it? That we don't learn things necessarily by a book or by a lecture or by somebody explaining it to us. We oftentimes learn things better when we catch it, when we watch somebody else do something and we seek to imitate it. And I think oftentimes we're more excited to learn that way, right? When we see somebody doing something really cool or something that we've always wanted to do and they're doing it successfully, right? We're more excited to learn from them and watch how they do it and imitate it. uh, And it makes us more willing to listen. And as we come back to the Sermon on the Mountain, as we kind of get into the meat of the Sermon on the Mount. I find it interesting uh, this morning as we think about where the Sermon on the Mount is in the Gospel of Matthew, that it's up front, that it's up front. It's not at the end, it's not like Jesus' big culminating speech where he's given his final message to his disciples, it's all the way up at the front, kind of like it's a table setter. And before I go any further, I want to just clarify something this morning, uh, because oftentimes, we're tempted to read the Sermon on the Mount the wrong way, and that we'll read passages like this out of Jesus' mouth, or in in the Bible in general, and there's this tendency to gospelize the passage, to gospelize the passage. And yes, I don't mean gospelize in a good thing. And what I mean by that is that we read this sermon, and we're immediately taught that what the Sermon on the Mount's only job is to do is to set an unattainable goal for us, to set a standard that we could never, ever reach. And so all the Sermon on the Mount is trying to do is tell you that you could never reach the goal that God has set for you and to fall back on a Savior, fall back on redemption. And so the sermon's only goal, the sermon's only goal is to exist to drive you to grace. And what happens is when we read the passage that way, and I'll get to it in a second, that's a good way to read it. But if that's the only way we read it, what happens is we take all this moral teaching that Jesus gave us and we kind of throw it under the rug, right? We can't do it. We can't make it. We can't live up to the standard that Jesus has set for us. And, but you know what? We don't have to. Grace, we fall back on the uh, great, not by works, uh, by, by grace. And yes, there is grace in Christ. Salvation is not by works, but by grace and faith alone. It is God's free gift. So we should read the Sermon on the Mount and feel our need for a savior. When it says that you should be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, we should feel that gap, that we need a savior, but we should take Jesus seriously here. That we should read everything here that Jesus says seriously. He wants to cultivate in us obedience. He wants to cultivate in us obedience. And so part of being a follower of Jesus is not just believing on him for salvation, but actually following Jesus is in part doing what he said. Following Jesus is in part doing what he said. And guess what? We don't have to worry about our salvation if we mess up. That's what grace is for. But if we're just people who are like, you know what, what Jesus said, we don't have to worry about it. We just have grace, right? That's a sanctification issue. It's an issue with our heart. See, God wants us as his people to grow and live according to his commandments. That's why Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so the Sermon on the Mount doesn't need to be read also as a list of moral rules and laws. But what Jesus is doing, and I kind of want to bring it all together this morning, what Jesus is doing is that he's table setting. Right? He's wetting the appetite, so to speak. See, you read the Sermon on the Mount up front in Matthew. And then what happens is you read the rest of the gospel. You read the rest of what Jesus did. And what you see is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus preaching, and then the rest of the gospel is Jesus practicing what he preached. It's what he practiced, what he preached. You see, Jesus emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount the importance of countercultural living for his disciples, and then for the rest of the gospels, we see him actually go live that out. See, Jesus teaches us And then he goes and does likewise. And so Jesus is kind of less like the lecturer up in front of your 400-person econ class, and rather he's actually like the mentor who's standing alongside you as you learn the ropes. You see, Jesus is not just teaching us to be obedient, but he's inviting us to catch it, to watch, to imitate. Because when we see Jesus actually live out the Sermon on the Mount, through the remainder of his ministry, what we begin to get a sense of is, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. Maybe life is different when we obey and follow his command. Maybe there is a better way than the way that I would necessarily write for myself. And so as this sermon calls us to catch obedience, not necessarily just learn it through words or a book or a lecture, but he invites us to watch and imitate how can we look at Jesus, Jesus' life, And imitate him well. So that when others look at us, they catch wind of the same thing. And they want that better way than the one that they have for themselves. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see three things that we catch from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, in this section. And the first thing that we see uh, is that we can catch truthfulness. We can catch truthfulness. And uh, the first lesson that I read this morning uh, is Jesus teaching on oath-taking. Uh, He's concerned about the way that we make promises and the way that we bind ourselves to one another. And just to give you a little bit of context in this, in the Bible, there are countless times and countless places where people would swear on the name of the Lord. I swear on the name of the Lord because in doing so, it just sounds like you're conveying truthfulness. It sounds like you're conveying seriousness. It sounds like you're conveying reverence. I should take you at your word because you are willing to swear on such a great entity, right? It's the same thing as like swearing on your grave or something like that. It's supposed to invoke a seriousness. It's supposed to invoke a reverence for what you're promising. But oftentimes, these oaths that were being taken throughout scripture, they were really just a performative act. They were really just designed to convince you that they were being honest, convince you that they meant what they said. But oftentimes what would happen is that the person would it keep up their end of the bargain? And so what Jesus is pointing out here uh, is the people who are making promises, the people who are making big, grand gestures, they're making big, grand gestures of loyalty, they're breaking their word at the first sign that it doesn't convenience them to keep the promise anymore. Right? They're invoking God's name as a way to show seriousness, and then guess what? They're not following through. Right? I got what I want. I don't know, need to keep this promise anymore. And so what Jesus is concerned with here is not so much the procedure of oaths, but what he's concerned with is about the truthfulness of the people who make them. The truthfulness of the people who make the promises. And I think that that makes sense. right? If you were to name a characteristic of somebody who you would want to be in relationship with, whether that's a romantic relationship or whether that's a friendship relationship, I guarantee you in everybody's top five in this room, right, trustworthiness would probably be right up there right someone who tells you something and then means what they says and they go and do it right someone who means what they say see trust and trustworthiness when we start talking about those ideas those aren't built on really performative promises on acts of saying you know what take me seriously that's not where we build trust and trustworthiness but actually where we build it is on follow-through Right? I make a promise, and then I do what I say. I mean what I meant. And what happens when we look at the Gospels is we see that Jesus did this time and time again. I want you to go through some time, and I just want you to underline in your Bible, anytime you see Jesus say, I will, I will do this, or he speaks authoritatively as the Savior, Right? on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he's talking to his disciples, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper. Jesus does this a couple more times. Come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Right? That's a promise. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus promises to equip you. Right? Jesus makes a couple different promises and then he also speaks as one who has authority. Right? He says this to a couple different people. Go. Your sins are are forgiven right not that your sins may be forgiven if you do the right thing but go your sins are forgiven and what do we find with every promise and statement that jesus makes he keeps them right he doesn't make a big deal about it but what makes it a big deal is that he followed through on what he said And so when we get up here and we say, you know what? God's promises are sure. Jesus' promises are sure. It's not because we're waiting for Jesus to fulfill the promises. It's because he's already kept some of his promises. And so we can trust that the ones that are still outstanding, we can wait with hope and trust that he will. That's why we sing, great is thy faithfulness. Not because we're waiting for God to be faithful, but because he's already been faithful. He's already done what he says. And so we can trust that he'll do it again, right? When Jesus is on the cross and he's hanging there and he says, it is finished, Right? That's not just some oath to the world that says, hey, you know what? You should follow me. It's finished, right? It has power because it's a true statement because Jesus has kept his word. It is finished. You see, as disciples who live in a world full of misinformation, more and more where you pull out your phone and you can't necessarily trust what you're looking at, more and more where you're talking to people and you're trying to read their facial expressions and read their body language, just what they're actually meaning. Do they actually sound genuine? Are they actually authentic with you? Isn't it powerful when we watch Jesus in this simple way and we catch his truthfulness that when we say yes, we actually mean yes. When we say no, we actually mean no. That people can lean on us when we say they can and they can trust us. Right? That's why the church is under such cultural scrutiny nowadays, is because people look at the church and we say one thing, and what happens? We go do the other. Right? We're hypocrites. We do one thing and we say another. And so what Jesus is inviting us to do is he's inviting us to watch. Watch how Jesus lived his life. His yes meant yes and his no meant no. And as Jesus kept his promises, all the way up to his promise of redemption for us, would we be people who watch that and go, you know what, we want to be the same. We want our words to carry power, be- not because we make grandiose gestures to convince people of our honesty, but because we mean what we say. Would we be people who mean what we say? So the first thing we do is we catch truthfulness, but the second thing we catch is Grace. And so Jesus continues on in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a teeth for a tooth. But Jesus comes in and he says, no. If someone does something to you, do not act in retaliation. And rather very famously, he gives the example, you know, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, we'll go ahead and give them the other cheek to slap as well, right? And I haven't been doing this Too terribly long in pastoral ministry, but this is one of those passages that I just know is really, really hard for believers to read and to take to heart. Right? Because when we read this passage, if something wrong happens to you, don't retaliate, turn the other cheek. Right? Something inside us fires, fires for justice. Right? Something inside us wants to right a wrong, right? As we talked about earlier this summer in Ecclesiastes, right? We only want things to be fair, right? That's something we as humans want. And so when something's not fair, particularly us as the victim, what do we want to do, right? We want to make it right. We want to retaliate. And why? Because we want justice, right? We want to make sure that we don't get walked over again, right? If somebody takes advantage of us, we want to make sure that people learn our, their lesson and they don't do it again, Right? And if you go soft on somebody, right? If you don't retaliate and you go soft and you don't respond to them doing something to you, what's gonna happen, right? You're only opening the door for them to do it again, right? So we wanna react, right? We wanna, we want justice. But the reason that Jesus raises this point is because those desires that we have for justice, those desires we wanna have to right a wrong, to retaliate, to fight back, right, those desires to teach somebody a lesson, those are a misplaced desire. Not that it's a bad desire, but it's a misplaced desire. It's a desire to sit in a seat that you were never designed to sit in. See, God's seat is the judgment seat. God's seat has always been the judgment seat, and we are to sit in the seat of grace because we've been shown great grace. Right, I think about Peter's denial of Jesus near the end of the Gospels. Right, Peter's adamant. Jesus, I'm not going to leave your side. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to follow you. They're not going to take you. Right? And then by the time the roosters crowed, Peter's denied Jesus three times. Right? One of Jesus' closest friends. The one whom Jesus spent so much time with training and living with. He denies him when Jesus needed consolation and somebody beside him the most, right? But after the resurrection, there's this beautiful scene when Jesus and Peter are having breakfast, at which time Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And rather than shame and guilt him for what he did, Peter, you denied me. Peter, you need to learn your lesson. Peter, can I trust you? Remember what Jesus says? He commissions him, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. See, rather than justice in that moment, Peter gets grace. Rather than retaliation, Peter gets embraced. And this is an idea that's really entrenched in the Psalms, when you read through the Psalms, because so many of the Psalms speak of anger and desperation and frustration over the enemies that are coming in, they're creeping in, they're attacking Right? They're oppressing, they're persecuting, but each time the psalmist, whether it's David or whether it's somebody else, he doesn't retaliate, but what does he do? He prays, right? He prays to the Lord, and he invites God to exact his vengeance, to exact his justice. He prays. See, Jesus, rather than exacting justice on Peter, which was his right, which he could have done, right? what does Jesus choose to do? He chooses to reconcile him. See, Jesus' heart is less than making a wrong right, fixing the wrong that had been done, but it's developing a relationship. And when we catch Jesus' grace, when we watch him throughout the gospels live in this kind of grace, what we realize is not that justice is bad, but we aren't the ones to make sure God's holiness is protected. God is holy and he can protect himself. God is sovereign over all of creation. God doesn't need protecting from people like us. Rather, Jesus calls us, God calls us to be instruments of grace. He calls us to love as we have been loved, to show grace where we've been shown grace. See, in a world where politics, when you turn on the screen, it just seems like a revenge game on both sides of the aisle right in a world where we see marriages fall apart every day because of selfishness and retaliation are the norm oh you're going to do this to me well I'll do this back to you oh you're going to treat me this way well I'll treat you this back to you in big and small ways right what's the way forward in that it's grace right trusting and knowing that you know what vengeance belongs to the lord and he has promised that he will have it and he calls you instead to be an instrument of grace As Jesus was. And so let's follow Jesus and catch some of his grace along the way. But finally, what we see is that we can catch love. We can catch true love. And we're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And going back to the last point, it's hard in the human heart. Sometimes we would think it's impossible in the human heart to love someone who actively seeks to undermine us, to cause us trouble, and, you know, just quite frankly don't like us. Right? That's hard. I think it's honest that we admit that to ourselves. And yet what we just talked about earlier, right? God's heart is for reconciliation. In all things, all of creation, God's heart is for reconciliation. And so the key to obedience, the key to obedience is when when you're catching what Jesus did throughout his entire life and on the way to the cross, what is he doing in everything he does, whether word or speech or actions, what's he doing? He's reconciling people to the Father. He's reconciling people to himself, right? Just a couple quotes of what Jesus said. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take heart, my son, and go. Your sins are forgiven. To the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus speaking Uh, to the Pharisees, I came not to call the righteous, but who did I come to call? I came to call sinners. Speaking to the Phoenician women, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And then speaking to the woman with the discharge, go, your faith has made you well. And maybe more than anywhere else, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he has been crucified by the people who have declared an innocent man guilty. What does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, the key to obedience, If we're gonna catch what Jesus was doing. If you wanna sum it all up, it was reconciliation. When you watch Jesus, everything he did was an invitation to relationship. Everything that Jesus did was saying, come to me. Come and be with me. Come and taste and see of the goodness of God, don't be left behind, right? And as his followers, when we get wrapped up in that kind of love, when we know that kind of love, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, right, then that's the way we go and live life for others. See, I think the temptation today, and we talked a little bit about this last week, the temptation is to quote Jesus as a truth teller. What Jesus did in his life was go around and point out all the sin of the Pharisees and all the sins of the people, right? And he shined a light on evil. And True enough, Jesus did that time and time again. But every time he did it, if you read the passage, there was what? There was usually an invitation, right? You aren't too far gone to be outside of grace. You see, when we're truly obedient, when we're truly an obedient people, what that obedience is going to look like is reconciling love, right? That's why we come to this table, too. Right? You think about this table. What happens at this table is Jesus invites 12 people who one's going to betray him, one's going to deny him, and the rest are going to scatter. Right? Jesus invites them to the table, and he already knows what's about to happen. And What does he do? He invites them to relationship. He invites them to a meal that is going to shadow the true communion that we will have with the Father. You see, the key to obedience is reconciling love. That's what Jesus came for, and that's what he wants us as his church to catch. Not the hard theology, not the rights and wrongs and the moral principles that we have to follow. No, he wants us to catch a whiff of the reconciling love that he has for his church. Because when we catch a glimpse of that, nothing else can be the same, and maybe nowhere else, than when we come to the table and we see it played out in front of us, body broken and bloodshed for us. And so I pray this morning that we would be obedient to God, that we would catch a whiff of that reconciling love, that we would catch winds of truthfulness, of grace, and of love. And would we be faithful to live that out? Let me pray for us. Lord, your life was a life of reconciliation. You came, you died, and you rose again to bring us back to yourself. And, Lord, every word you spoke, every action that you made was always done with that intention to open our eyes to the ways in which we'd fallen and to bring us back to you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we come to this table that you would remind us of that truth yet again, that you came to reconcile us, that you came to make us whole, that you came to bring us home. So, Lord, would you be with us and would you encourage us we come to this table in faith. Lord, would you bless this bread and this cup. Lord, would it be used to communicate your promises of grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.